Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. We're continuing our series this morning titled Our Message and Our Mission. And so uh, last week we did a one-off on fear. Before that, Jake Clausen preached on mission. And the week before that, we actually preached on um, our message. So what we're doing is actually spending a few weeks going through our core values as a church. So if you're new and you're wondering what our core values are, uh, this is a great time to jump in. If you've been here for a while, it's also a good um, refreshment of what our core values are. And so we started the first week with our message. And our message is that we want to be gospel-centric, which means we want to see how the gospel speaks to all of life. It shapes all of life. And, and that's what we want to center our church in and around. The next was mission. So what do we do after this message grabs a hold of our hearts? How do we live? How does it change our lives? That we live missionally, not, not, not defining mission as something we do overseas, but in fact, how we live every day in, uh, in the places that God has placed us. Today, we're going to look at transparency, what it is to be authentic. And here's what I would start off by saying is that the reason why this is a core value for us is this, is it's from someone who did not grow up following Jesus, I had a really big struggle with Christians, right? And then I feel like even the closer I got, the more that struggle became. And then I even struggled with pastors, various reasons. And a lot of it was this, is I wasn't exposed to much transparency. I wasn't exposed to a whole lot of authenticity. And so my understanding was, is that when you became a Christian, then you lived this perfect life without sin anymore, and so when I looked into people's lives, I was like, I'm never going to measure up to that. And so I don't know what it is or what's the point of trying. And so the reason why this is a core value for us is because transparency has monetary value for people. But what it does is it actually exposes us for what we are. And that's imperfect, not, not, not righteous, but instead we look to a perfect and righteous savior. So Christians are imperfect looking to a perfect savior. And so the only difference between me standing up here and a little bit of an elevation and the people out here right now is this, is technically what any pastor should know is what Paul knew, is the person that stands up here and preaches is a person that actually needs more grace than anyone else. The, the person that is more imperfect than anyone else. And it's not to say that, uh, that I am more imperfect. It's just to say that the person that preaches the gospel each week is, a person should, uh, is the person that should believe the gospel that they preach and believe that they're the ones that are in great need of it and of grace. And so it levels the playing field. This is important for us because it allows people to see they're not perfect, which means they must be pointing to someone else who is. And for all Christians, we would say exactly, it's Jesus Christ. So with that, we're going to dive in this morning to the middle of Romans. And so we're going to be in Romans chapter 7, but not just in the middle of this letter. We're also in the middle of this chapter. And so I want to give a little context before we read it and what's going on in Romans and before we jump into uh, to pray this morning. <clears throat> First, Romans is this massive letter. And it's this letter that, uh, uh, that, that has a lot of great history in, in regard to the way that it's impacted people throughout history. And so Augustine um, would say this book played a major role in his conversion, as would John Wesley, as would Martin Luther, and as would John Calvin. In fact, John Calvin says that Romans is the doorway to the treasure of all scripture. It is a book that says God 153 times, Christ 65 times, Lord 43 times, Jesus 36 times, and the law 74 times. It is a book that has this robust 
gospel-centered theology. And in fact, it spends uh, almost the uh, first entire 11 chapters giving uh, indicatives. And what I mean, mean by that is it's just a lot of truth. It's a lot about truth about who God is and what God has done and accomplished and finished through and in Jesus Christ. Not until chapter 12, really, do we start getting into imperatives, which are commands. Here's how you live out of these. So Paul spends a lot of time unpacking and revealing truth because he understands that until you really grasp the gospel message, then it's not really going to impact the way that you live. And so he spends a lot of time doing that. So as we jump in today, we also jump in with the Apostle Paul. In, in a sense, we're getting to see inside of his mind, inside of his heart, inside of his thoughts. It's almost like we're getting to read a journal by Paul. We're getting to, to, to step into the, the man that wrote the majority of the New Testament and see this man struggles. Like he really struggles with sin. Like he really battles it. So much so that, that, that he lays it out here for us. And here's the awesome thing. Paul could have left this out. Like all of this could have been left out, right? But he doesn't leave it out. He exposes himself and shows this is, the this is the internal battle that I battle and wrestle with constantly in my life. And because of that, we go, oh, good, <laughs> me too. I have those same struggles. I have that same battle. And so with that, let's read these words by the Apostle Paul, starting in verse 15 of chapter 7. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do not want, uh, do, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do, but sin that dwells within me. 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it's true. God, we thank you so much for this morning that we can open your word and learn. God, correct us, convict us, heal us, minister to us. I know there are people in this room, there are people online that are arriving at just different spots this morning. Some people feel the weight of their sin. Some people feel the weight of shame. Some people feel that, God, you are just incredibly disappointed in their life and the direction that it's ended up. There are others that are suffering this morning, just loss and pain and hardship, God. And again, we thank you that you're not a God that remained distant, far off, or removed, but instead you are a God that stepped into creation the humanity of Jesus Christ to rescue us. Lord, you know, again, what pain is. You know what suffering is. You know what grief is. You know what hardships are and trials because you stepped in. So we thank you for that. This morning, remind us of the gospel. God, free us through the gospel to actually be real, transparent, authentic, vulnerable people that can be exposed in whatever state we're in, God, because ultimately we know 
that it's not about us, it's about you. And so through our weaknesses, through our flaws, through our faults as a community, highlight Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. For those of you guys joining online, welcome. And again, for those of you guys here, it's, it's good to be here. Uh, and the main point this morning I want you to walk away with is name it and claim it, okay? So name it and claim it. And you guys probably know this by now, not, we are not a prosperity church and we do not, we loathe the prosperity gospel, which basically means uh, that as long as you are uh, uh, healthy and wealthy, that good things are coming your way in life. But then you read the New Testament and you see these men and women were very godly, very faithful, and their lives ended up with lots of persecution. And so the prosperity gospel is a false gospel. So what we're saying is this, is that you need to name your brokenness for what it is, your sin for what it is, and then lay claim to what is yours and what you possess in Jesus Christ. So name it, your brokenness, your sins, your faults, your failures, and then claim it, what belongs to you and who you are in Jesus Christ. So uh, several years ago, I took a trip back to Roseburg where I grew up and was having lunch with a good friend of mine. Good friend, and I'll just leave it at that. I thought we were just going to be grabbing lunch, and, uh, uh, and so we went to our favorite Chinese restaurant down there to grab lunch. And for about the next hour, if not hour and a half, I listened to my friend, still a very close friend of mine, not non-Christian friend, basically point out every flaw and fault that he saw in me. And not just like he did this like over the past like week or month, but like basically from like the time we met when I was like 13. So it was, it was, it was a good long, long conversation, okay? And, and for the most part, I, I just sat there and listened. I didn't disagree. I just sat and I listened. But I drove away. Uh, obviously, I wasn't chipper or excited uh, about any of this. But I drove away uh, just like speechless and kind of in awe. And I remember just even getting like traveling back up to Eugene and around College Grove, just being like, man, what do I do? Like, what, what do I do with this? Like, I don't necessarily disagree on all of his character assessment and stuff like that. There was some stuff that was wrong, but I was like, what do I do with it? But I was like, I ended up calling my wife and I was like, do you know the bummer? The, the, the thing that really gets me is I don't necessarily disagree with all that he said, but it was only half the story. Like my non-Christian friend could only give me half the story. And I'll explain what I mean by this later on in the sermon. But it was just basically, here's the one half. Rick, you're really screwed up. You're really broken. You're really sinful. Here's basically all the things I've ever seen that's wrong with you. I mean, details like on your wedding day here stuff. I'm like, okay, all right, this is, this is a good time. This is, this is not the lunch I thought it was going to be. And, and so that's what happened. And I'm like, my goodness, where do I go from here? And, and again, I told my wife, I was like, I only got half the story. And so today, I want to make sure that, that as we look at Paul's story, and as we look at our story, and as we look at Scripture, that, that we're not just getting half the story. That's the name it part. But I also want to make sure that we understand there's the claim it part, too, of what is ours and what belongs to us in Jesus Christ. I, I, need, I need you to do this with me. If you can hold your Bible or whatever you're using in hand, I want to explain the structure of the text because it's going to help us. Because what Paul is doing here is, 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 is really significant, Okay. In, in my Bible, it's underlined between green and red. But if you'll notice with me, we're going from 15 through 25, and I need you to see what Paul does here. Um, starting off in 15, Paul says four. Notice that? Starting off in 16, he says now. If you jump down to 18, he says four. And if you jump down to 20, he says now. 
If you jump down to 22, he says four. And then ending with 23, he says, but I. So Paul is going four and then now, four now, four now. So it's, it, it's in a sense poetic because he's walking through this structure, four and then now, four and then now. And so what he's saying is, is the fours in this, and the text that is 15, 18, 19, and 22 are all talking about this desire Paul has, but his inability to carry it out. These are all the fours. Or I know what I'm supposed to do, but I'm not doing the very thing that I know I'm supposed to be doing. In fact, I do the very thing that I hate that I do. And again, I remember uh, listening to uh, Matthew Russell's boy, Matt Chandler, and uh, Matt Chandler says that he was also very confused by Christianity because his understanding was is that Jesus gets you in and then you better lace up your bootstraps real tight because from this moment on, it's all up to you to make sure that you stand right with God. It's false and not understanding the gospel, but I think that's the way that a lot of people think and, and, and functionally, that's the way a lot of people live in the sense of like, we don't show or expose any sort of flaws or faults or sins. But Paul says, I don't even understand my own actions. Like, I love the, the, the honesty of the apostle Paul. He's like, I know the very thing I'm supposed to do, but I do the very thing that I hate. I, I, I feel this. I hate that I'm defensive. I hate that I'm reactive. I hate that I'm short on patience. I hate that I get mad at people when I'm driving in the Target parking lot and they just walk down the center of the aisle and I'm in my car. Like, I hate lack of awareness with shopping carts. I hate all those things. I hate that it bothers me. I, I wish that I was like Dr. Todd Miles and, like, and I asked him one time, he's a professor up at Western Seminary, I'm like, how come it seems like nothing bothers you? Also, in fact, it just makes me want to prod you more to see what's in there. I was like, why does it seem like nothing's bothering you? I wish I was like that. I don't like that I'm so competitive. I don't like that everything comes flying out of my mouth and I lose it catchphrase. That's true. I don't like that I can't beat my wife at bananagrams. And this is, this is also true. And so I spent, instead of working on a sermon one week, I spent time studying how to win at bananagrams for our date, because we had a date night coming up, and I'm like, I'm not going to lose tonight. I'm going to win a Bananagrams. And then I got home, and I was like, I just want to share. I'm going to confess with you. We dumped them out on the table. I was like, I cheated. I looked at all the ways that, like, you can win at Bananagrams. I'm like, what is wrong with me? That I do these things, and I'm like, I do the very things I don't want to do. I'm not the husband I want to to be. I'm I'm not the father I want to be. That's why we're constantly, even as Chris Kyle just said, we're, we're trying to point you that I'm not the hero, that none of us are the hero, that Jesus Christ is the hero. Because if you put your hope and trust in me and our elders and anyone in this church, you are going to be let down at some point. It is going to happen because we're not heroes. Neither is Paul. Paul knew the hero. In fact, I love what Dr. Brian Chappell says. He's like, our Bibles pull no punches basically in tarring every other character, almost every other character other than Jesus Christ. Recently heard someone say, like, I don't think I could ever commit the sin of adultery. Like, even in that statement, I'm like, careful, because are you a better leader than David that did it? Are you more wise than Solomon that did it? Are you stronger than Samson? Again, we could go through these Bible characters over and over and over again. I love our Bible. I'm, I'm massively in love with our Bibles. One of the things that I love about our Bibles, and I think that we're drawn to, is it's the most transparent and authentic book. Like, you read the stories, and you're like, what in the world? is going on with that. And then you see the way that God has been faithful. I don't read Genesis through Malachi and go, what a faithful people. I go, what a faithful God. His grace is amazing. 
I see God working in the midst of a lot of human brokenness and using it for his glory and our good. And it's amazing. See this in Paul, in his declarations here. Even as I said, we we jump down in verse 18. I want to uh, look at the fours first. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Go to 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Again, this is Paul saying that there is a war and a tension going on inside of him. And I think that's a consistent thing that should be there in the believer's life, not just me. Charles Cranfield said this, that this passage depicts vividly the inner conflict characteristic of every true Christian. A, A conflict such as possible only in the man or woman who the Holy Spirit is active in. John Calvin said this, this passage, this is Christian warfare between flesh and spirit that Paul is speaking of here. This is what it is. There's a battle, there's a tension, there's a war going on. And here's, here, here's, here's the first question. If Paul, the apostle who wrote the majority of the New Testament, is willing to lay bare his flaws and faults and his sin, what's going on inside of him, why can't we? What is in us that, that doesn't allow us to expose where we're at? What keeps us from naming it? Because that's what Paul's doing. He's naming the thing that he can't do. He's like, I know what I should do, but I can't do it. I know what I should do, but I don't have the desire to do it. What stops us from naming our brokenness? Let me give you five types of people that exist, I think, inside the church. I've just named them for fun. First, there's Daryl, okay? Daryl believes he is transparent, though others around him would wholeheartedly disagree. He says he just knows the appropriate context to be transparent in, and it's pretty much never where you're at. The reality of what Daryl feels seems really inconsistent with what what others around him experience. So Daryl thinks he's really transparent, but no one else really feels like Daryl is actually transparent. Then there's Linda, number two. Transparency for Linda is not talking much about her sin, but in fact, it's about her work, her cat, or her life circumstances, which can be less than ideal. You could say, Linda, how are you? And she would say, good, but I'm really struggling with my coworker's third cousin's dog and his sickness that he has and that they can't afford treatment, something like that. We've heard this in prayer groups, right? She, she, She will tell you what is wrong with the world what's wrong with everything around her as a way that she doesn't have to focus on her own fear and her own shame and her own insecurities. And there's Charles. Charles can't remember the last time he's actually confessed sin to his wife, family, or anyone for that matter. He would share struggles with his wife, but it would hurt her because she's too fragile. So he lives a lie that he is good when in reality, the false image he has built is the only thing that's too fragile. For guys like Charles, for women like Charles, their egos and false images are like shiny new cars that they don't want to dare put a dent or a scratch in. So the Charles of the communities really love their false image and their ego that they've built more than they love the identity that Christ has given. 
Then you, then, then you have your Lacey, which the Lacey is like, who, who in the heck invited Lacey to the group? Because Lacey overshares again and again. From porn to tax fraud and king your neighbor's car, like she, she's the person that doesn't know what she shouldn't share in a group setting. This is the type of person where you, if, you, if you're in a group, you try to like transition her out or just find another time of day that you know that she can't make it to and change your group to that time. You only laugh because if you lead a group, you've thought of something like that. Then there's Paul and the other leaders in the Bible. Paul doesn't have to lay out everything he's going through, if you notice that. But he's willing to be real. He's, He's willing to be transparent. Why? The reason why Paul is willing to lay down his, his, his sin, to, 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 lay, to lay down his struggle, is because his identity is driven by who he is in Christ. And by exposing his sin, what he aims to do is to highlight the amazingness of Christ. See, real transparency is not just being transparent for the sake of impressing people with your transparency. Real transparency is exposing yourself so you can show what a failure you are and how amazing Jesus Christ is. The church gets uber weird whenever we stop acting like we're failures. Whenever we stop acting like we don't need grace anymore. In fact, if I ask everyone in the room who's lived perfectly this week to remain seated and everyone else to stand up, I could assure you that everyone in the room would stand up. If I ask everyone in the, in the, the room who struggles with sin in their life, I, I would hope that everyone was honest enough to stand up. But then why do we live and not confess as though we don't need the very grace that we sing about? This was, I'm just saying, this was really hard for me. And if you're not a Christian, you can relate to me here. If you're a Christian, hear this. This was really hard for me as a non-Christian with Christians. Even now, just to be honest, I struggle trusting pastors a lot, just people a lot, because I'm like, you seem so phony. And, and you hear people say this, which I don't like either. Like, I don't go to church because everyone there is a hypocrite, right? It, but here's what I would say to that person now, graciously. Are they hypocrites? Because if they're actually stating that they know they're broken sinners that don't like the sin that they're struggling with, they're not hypocrites. In fact, they're honest. They're authentic. They're transparent. They're real. What we could say graciously is that what you're doing is slandering, gossiping, and not talking about someone and gives light. And so to, to the people that are at church, if they battle their sin and they hate it, that's not a hypocrite. That's Paul. And that should be all of us. We should be able to name it, name our brokenness, name our need for grace, name our need for Jesus, share it with our family, share it with people, because every time that we declare how utterly messed up we are, we get to point and say, but, like the Apostle Paul, Jesus Christ. I like what Tim Keller says. He says this, he says, this passage here warns us that no one ever gets so advanced in the Christian life that they no longer see their sin. If we feel ourselves to be pretty good Christians, we are deceived. John says that in First John. If you think you're without sin, you're deceived. He goes on to say this. For the more mature and spiritually discerning we get, the more we see the sin in our hearts. The more holy we become, the less holy we feel. In other words, spiritual maturity is about being able to name our brokenness and name our sin. It's what Paul is doing here. It's what our Bibles do. The kids are learning about Peter. The, 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 the Bible pulls no pr- uh, punches again with showing how broken Peter was time and time and time again. As Christians, we need to be people that name our 
laws. There's healing in this too. Look at what James says in 5.16. He says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayers of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Again, there's people in the room that are battling bitterness, envy. We're going through a dry season. You're going through a rough marriage, through rough and difficult things. I don't know anyone during the pandemic that is just thriving in health. <laughs> I know a lot of people that are struggling and trying to struggle well. It's really helpful if we can just name it for what it is. It's really weird to act like you're in a, 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 in a great spot when you're in a desert. It's very inconsistent. So let's name it for what it is. There's also great healing. Whenever you're struggling with bitterness and resentment, envy and all these things, the Bible would say there's even healing in confessing our sins to one another. Again, do you confess your sin to anyone? You would say to God, James is saying to others in the church, name it, name it for what it is. Or do we go back to the group of people? And in fact, you don't confess it because other people can't bear it. Your spouse can't bear it, whatever it is. Or is it that your identity and image that you've created that is so false and so fake can't bear it? That's blunt, but I want it to be for what it is. Because oftentimes we love our image that we build more than we love the identity that Christ has given us. I, I love what even Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weak weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. Name it like Paul for what it is. I know the, the good I desire to do. I, I, I know what I should be doing, but I struggle to do the very thing. I want to do it. But there's this battle that's going on inside of me. Name it like Martin Luther. Do you know what his dying words were that, that we have? Is we are all beggars. That's how he defined Christians, beggars all desperately in need of grace. Martin Luther, John Calvin, the Apostle Paul, all willing to name that they are sinners in massive need of grace. Now, verses 16, 17, 20, and 23, 21 and 23, all start with now, or close to it, because what Paul is saying, here's the internal battle going on, but here's why it's happening. Here's the reason why it's happening. Is, is, is there something inside of me that's happening that, that, that's causing this? Look at 16. Now, if I do not do what I, what I want, I agree with the law that it is good. Paul is a faithful Jewish man. And that's how he grew up. Paul loved the law as Jews love the law. They don't see it as a curse. They see it as actually God's gift and kindness to them. And so Paul would say, whoa, the, the, the law is a very good thing. It's actually God's gift of kindness to us. But Paul also has a right relationship and understanding with the law. He says in 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So what's going on is we have to understand law and we have to understand sin. Let me explain law like this. Uh, this, this last year, opening day of uh, archery elk season, I took my 2001 Civic into the woods. That's my hunting vehicle. It was. Um, his name was Randall. And so this was Randall's last day to ever take a trip into the woods. This is the only thing that died that day. And so 
I was going up there and like smoke was coming out of the engine, but like no matter <laughs> no matter what, I was gonna push Randall to where I needed to be. And that's when that was when Randall took his last breath. And so at that point, the, the check engine light had been on for a while. But I chose to ignore the check engine light. And I had also taken my car to Napa Auto Parts and they have this awesome tool. They, they hook it up and, and, and it reads whatever the, the code is. It's a diagnostic tool and they give you a code and they say, here's what's wrong with your car, okay? Here's the problem. My check engine light and that tool were not able to fix the problem. They were only able to diagnose what was wrong with my car. It was dying. They could not fix it. In, in the same way, my, my close friend could tell me everything that's humanly possible or, or everything that's wrong with my human character. But his assessment cannot fix it. God's law is good, and it can tell us everything that's wrong with us as a diagnosis to show us this. We're hopeless. As Augustine said, God's law exposes our sinfulness and our weakness. As Elise Fitzpatrick says, preach the law of God to your kids day in and day out. Why? Because the only response that your kids could have to understanding God's law is there's no way I can do this. And then that she says, that's when you say, exactly, Jesus Christ has. The law it is good. It's perfect. It's holy because it comes from a holy God, but, but, but it, it is a diagnostic tool. It's a mirror. It shows us how good God is and how holy he is and how flawed and messed up we are. It also says this is how life can be lived in a good manner, but it also shows us again, we're not capable of doing that. Why? Because what also Paul says here in these verses is it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. He's not saying he's a robot and he doesn't make choices. He's saying the, the, the presence of sin here on this earth is so real and it's so powerful. Again, Christian after Christian could say, I don't like the things I do. In fact, if you gave me a pill for this one area of life, you name it, whatever it is, lust, greed, anything, I would take the pill to make it go away. Sin is real. And what Paul is saying, on this earth, there is a real battle. And it's with sin, and it's with a sin nature. And so Paul is also saying that with this sin nature, the enemy, there's an evil one, if you read down, to 21, he's saying that there's evil close at hand. So the enemy knows exactly how to tempt you. And here's what he's saying. That you are at the same time, both flawed and a sinner and righteous and holy. Martin Luther, simul usus et peccator. That you are simultaneously justified, declared righteous, but at the same time, you are simultaneously broken and sinful at the same time. Really screwed up. And why? Because there's sin that lives in you. And the law shows us that we are broken sinners. But the law cannot bring about any change in and through our lives. So at the beginning of this, I said I had a friend that told me half the story. He, he told me everything that was wrong with me, but I said he was able to name my, 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 my sin. But he wasn't able to give me the other half of the story. What's the other half of the story? The other half of the story is this, is by the time you get to reading uh, all of this and you get down to verse 24, if, if you're reading it honestly like Paul, you go, man, me too. And he goes, wretched man that I am. 
He, look, he goes, who will deliver me from this body of death? Like, who's going to deliver me from this presence of sin here on this earth? If there was anything or anyone that could deliver me, I, I, I would, I just, I need it. And then he says this, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he's willing to name his struggles, name his battle, name what's going on with him. Paul is actually able to call himself what? The chief of sinners in 1 Timothy. But he also knows that there's another side of the story, the greater side of the story, the second half of the story that trumps the first half. What is it? What my friend could not tell me is, Rick, that is all true, but there's a greater truth about you. I left in almost tears. I mean, just broken. Because what I wasn't reminded of is, yes, that might be true, but this is who you are as a child of God. You are pure, you are perfect, you are righteous, you are holy, you are blameless, you are all of these things. Why? Because God's word cannot lie. And this is what God has declared true of you in Jesus. If you actually keep reading on to, to chapter 8 and verse 1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation, no guilt, no penalty for those in Christ Jesus. This is what I should have been told. Rick, you're guilty for all these things, but here's the other truth, the greater truth, the second half of the story. you got to claim this and claim this to be true about your, uh, yourself. There is no guilt for you in Jesus. From someone who struggles to believe the gospel, though I preach it every week, love grace, love the, the, the message of the gospel, just struggle to believe that God could actually love a broken sinner like myself for the life that I've lived and solely love me based upon the life that Christ lived for me. I struggle. I need it. I've been gospeled this week by people in our church, and I'm thankful for that. I'm never above someone just preaching the gospel to me, giving me the other side of the story, giving me what I lay claim to, what belongs to me, what is mine, and I'm thankful for that. We have to do that for each other. We have to speak to people's fear. And, and, and like John says in 1 John 4, 18, that there is no fear for those of us that are in Christ Jesus because fear has to do with punishment. Christ took our punishment. You cannot possibly be, being, or be punished by God because Christ was punished for you. It speaks to guilt, as Paul says here. In the same way that we transferred and wired that money to Juan's church in Barranquilla, Colombia, that legally belongs to his. The very same way, the full righteousness, the full perfection, the full purity of Christ legally belongs to us because Christ has made it ours. There's not a part of our life that's unhidden by Christ. There's not a part of our life that is not covered in his righteousness. It's all covered. It's all hidden. It deals with shame. I love these verses. In Isaiah 61-7, it says this, instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. But, but the question goes like, wait, how are you going to do this? And, and, and he tells us in, in verse 10 of the same chapter, he says, I will, greatly, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. Here you go. Here's how God's going to deal with your shame. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. What we have to claim as ours, and I mean claim it to ourselves, preach it to ourselves, claim it to one another, claim it to our community daily and constantly, over and over and over again, is that God is not disappointed in you because of your actions. God has his full measure of love and approval and acceptance on you because of Christ's actions in your place. God is not looking at you because you didn't read your Bible this morning and saying, I'm disappointed in you. 
because that's about you. God looks and chooses to look at the life that Christ lived 2,000 years ago for you in your place and says, this is why I'm impressed. This is why I'm not disappointed in you because I'm not looking to you. Introspection is good. Paul is being introspective here, but Paul doesn't stay here. He doesn't wallow in it. He, he gets to, to say this. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has redeemed us, who has rescued us, who has saved us. And so Paul names this, but then he claims what's his. I feel like over and over and over and over and over again, I feel like a walking paradox, a dichotomy, so inconsistent. I think that's why I love Brennan Manning as an author. Is he was so familiar with his depth of brokenness. This week I struggled to preach, and my wife knows this, just confessing sin to her. I feel like I told her, I was like, I don't even feel like I should be standing up there. The one thing that gives me hope is that I get to lay claim to who I am in Christ. The one thing that gives me hope is opening my Bible and seeing time and time again that God delights to take broken, jacked up people and use them for his glory. So what do we do and how do we faithfully live out of this appropriately in community? If you go on and read chapter eight, which I would recommend to do later, is Paul doesn't stay here. He doesn't live here. And, and, and he's not like, I'm actually a slave to sin. What he actually goes on to say is that he's a slave to the spirit and he looks to the spirit. And so Paul knows the greater truth is that, yes, we have a sin nature that we'll struggle with until Christ returns. But he knows that he's been bought, purchased and redeemed, made new. And so he can do one of two things. He can either live out of his sin nature or he can live into his new nature that Christ has given him. And so what we do as a community is we name it, we claim it, but then we live out of now who we are in Christ. And we encourage others to do the same. Let community be the judge. Just a couple helpful steps. Ask people, am I a transparent person? <laughs> am I authentic? And let community be the judge. Don't you be the judge. Next week, constantly point people to who we are in Christ. If we're going to name something in someone's life for what it is, also claim who they are now in Christ and say, hey, the reason I'm meeting with you right now is because this is what I see. This is who you are. And you're living inconsistent with it. This, this relationship, this what's going on in your life, it's not true to who you are in Christ. And I love you too much to not say something and encourage you to live into the purity that you have now and that's been made yours in Jesus. Last, be wise. Being, being transparent doesn't mean being foolish and just laying out all of your dirt for everyone. It just means we can be wise. Find a trusted group of people to share what's going on in your life, to share your struggles, to, to, to bear that burden with you and lay it out before them. Especially be wise in this with the opposite sex. I'm saying men be cautious, women be cautious, who we're going to emotionally bear our souls with. But my prayer this week is that we could be a community that doesn't feel like we have anything to hide, that doesn't need to hide but instead we can be a community that names it and then claims it because the claiming is ultimately Christ laying claim to our lives. We're going to sing as if I'll have the worship team come up now. We're going to sing tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Love this old hymn. You can trust in one of two things. You can trust in your performance or you can trust in Christ right now. You can trust in your life, your actions, or you can trust in his. Then we're going to sing blameless. And this song is one of my favorites because it is declaring 
who we are in Christ, holy and blameless and righteous. And my encouragement for us is this is good news, to sing out who we are now in Christ. God, we love you. Praise you that we can name our brokenness, but also claim what's true of us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.